Hello and welcome to Main Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Mia Doring. She's a writer, a psychotherapist and the author of Any Girl, a memoir of sexual exploitation and recovery. We spoke about why sex-positive feminism really struggles to understand the nature of the sex industry and the trauma inherent to it. Uh, we spoke about um, the public response to Mia's book, um, which is at, at times being pretty heated. And uh, we spoke about why consent is a useless framework for understanding all of these all of these subjects and why it would be better to talk about mutuality rather than consent. As always, you can find Maiden Mother Matriarch on Substack at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find extended episodes, bonus episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Mia, I think given that the book we're talking about is your memoir, it probably makes sense to just start from the top and explain where you were born, your childhood, you know, be roughly roughly chronological in starting the story. Yeah, um, I was born in Dublin, Ireland. I live here on my own with my dog. Um, yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Dublin, a suburb called Kalaini, Um I had a normal middle-class childhood. I have a large family. I'm the youngest of five children. Um, yeah, it was all pretty standard. <laughs> um, and then, I guess I'll tell you the story of what happened. Yeah. Not as, I mean, the, I think people should read the book because that's... Yeah. That's obviously yeah. where the full story is. But if you just give us a yeah. sense, I guess, of... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's such a long story. I try and, like, keep it brief because <laughs> it's, like, seven years' worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, I guess the beginning point, the beginning that I put in the book, um, although, obviously, everything that happens in it is informed by a lot more than one particular incident... But um, I was raped in a park when I was 16. So I was drunk and unconscious. And obviously that left me in a very vulnerable place. I was incredibly isolated. Um, I didn't tell anybody about it. Um, I didn't really understand that what happened to me was rape because I'd never had sex before. So, I mean, talking about consent and all this kind of stuff that's happening now wasn't happening then at all. Um, so that year after was very difficult. I felt very separate from life, from the world, from everybody in my life, but, but really separate from the world itself. It was, it was a real splitting experience. Um, and then within the year anyway, of it happening, um, a man came into my life, an older man, he would have been in his thirties. I was 16. And he um, came into my life via my phone, so it was via text messages. And he groomed me um, for about a year or so. And it was sexual in nature, and I knew it was sexual, and that didn't bother me at all. That was fine. Because for me, um, and I knew it was shady, you know, I knew 
this was maybe a dangerous situation or a dodgy situation. Dodgy situation. I wouldn't have thought of it as dangerous. But um, the reason I kind of was up for this or okay with this texting thing was that I needed attention so badly. Um, and this wounded part of me needed attention so badly that any attention was good attention. Do you know? Mm. So that went on. Yeah, for a year or so. I can't really remember. Everything's very jumbled, you know, chronologically. And I eventually met him because I, I didn't meet him. I met him eventually. And the whole texting situation was very on and off, on and off bursts here and there. So it wasn't like my daily life or anything like that, which actually made it easier to be part of than if it was overwhelming me. It might have been too much and I might have gotten out of the situation. But because it was kind of a drift feed in the background, I, I kind of wanted it more and more and more. Um, and he was very dominant, very in charge. He made me call him certain titles um, that I just can't say. I just can't say the word. Um, he would be angry with me if I didn't get back to him on time. He was very interested in my school uniform. Um, that was his main thing was school uniforms um, mm. or the fact I had one. Um, then I met him and, uh, he like made me wear like this pornified version of a school uniform and do my hair a certain way and all this kind of fetishy stuff. Um, and when I was leaving that place, um, he gave me a hundred pounds, was pounds in Ireland back in the day. Uh, two fifty pound notes, and he said, "Here's some pocket money." And we never, we didn't talk about money. He never said, "I'm going to pay you to hang out to be with me um, for that amount of time or whatever." He just gave it to me, and um, I was I was seventeen years old, and I was thrilled to have a hundred pounds. Do you know? Um, yeah, it's like mm -hmm. winning the lottery when you're seventeen. Mm -hmm. You know. So. What happened for me and him giving me the money meant that it completely, it glossed over feelings I had during the two hours or so or whatever it was I'd spent with him. Um, it made it kind of okay. So it compensated me for what had happened. Like he didn't have sex with me. But um, I just want to make that clear. Um, because if I don't talk about what happened, people kind of assume, oh, he had sex with you, but he didn't have sex with me. And he never had sex with me the whole time. Um, so what it did was kind of like, go, oh, well, that, that was easy for £100. And it squished the feelings I'd had, any niggles or any, like, I really didn't like him, any of those feelings. Uh, it squished them completely. It made it be a job that I'd just done. Um... It bribed me to come back. And the, mo the most powerful thing it did was that it made me complicit. So I'm sure he wasn't sitting around thinking about all of this. Um, but of course he wanted me to come back. So this was like a bribe to keep me coming. But it, the, the crucial thing that happened for me is that it made it complicit. Uh, it made me complicit, I mean. So then I carried on seeing him meeting him um over for about three years or so um on and off in hotels around Dublin um then he brought he 
had this thing where he wanted to take photos so he had this whole tripod set up like and a camera and this lead thing so that he could be in the photo with me while taking the photos and it was never discussed like he never said to me do you mind if I take a photo or I'd like to take photos of you it just sort of kind of happened like these things just kind of happen and then you're in the situation and I really apart from everything else he did the photo taking felt weirdly the most exposing and I hate hearing the flash he had a whole he had a whole setup going on um hearing the flash go off it was just it was paralyzing really um uh, yeah, really paralyzing and really powerless making. Um, so that went on for a few years. Did you realize at the time th how extreme that power dynamic was? Or did it take time for you to recognize it in retrospect? No, because when you're that young, you don't see things clearly. Mm. You don't know. That's why older men prey on younger women and young girls because they just think it's okay. And they think I have to do what the adult wants me to do. Mm. And he's paying me to do it. So I have to. Um, absolutely no way was I, I, I hope teenage girls are more, because we talk about these things much more now, that they're more aware. But I think it would have been impossible for me to come to that realization on my own. I would have had to have somebody intervening. Um, yeah, it's, and it's still like even a couple of years ago, I'd like talk with my therapist and say like, but I willingly showed up and he didn't really know. Like I, I was still in this and I still kind of am. I'm not sure if it ever, ever really leaves you that sense of culpability. I think that's one of the really, really powerful things about your book is that there is a tendency when talking about the sex industry for it to be framed either as women who are trafficked and have absolutely no agency whatsoever or women who are kind of girl bosses and that those are the two models. And and I think what you described so clearly is the enormous amount of grey area between those mm. two extremes because... I mean, I don't know, what was, was, were you above the age of consent in Ireland at the time? Yes, I was 17 when I met him. Yeah, so, so, so technically you were able to consent to mm. sex. Mm -hmm. um, but also we know, I mean, ha we've both been 17-year-old girls and we know what 17-year-old girls are like. And anyone who has a daughter, you know, like, it's madness to think that 17-year-old girls completely, can be completely... yeah knowledgeable about what they're getting no. themselves into with that no and and especially when it's an older man you can get groomed at any age um and he was paying me like the the notion of it being sexual consent um just doesn't even factor in here at all did it make it feel as if did it become normal yeah well oh, it's totally normal but it was also a secret i wasn't telling anybody about this Mm. So that tells me some part of me knew it wasn't normal, right? Not even your friends. So I assume your parents knew absolutely nothing. But you didn't no. even tell friends or anything. No, no, no. I saw it as harmless. And I wanted it because I wanted the money. Because the money made me... The money in that moment he gave me the £100. It was like, here is tangible evidence of what you're, of your worth. Here is tangible evidence of your value. 
um, here's tangible evidence of your sexuality having value. This broken part of you or this wounded part of you actually matters and means something and it's important. And this is how much I think it's important. It's so important. I'm giving you 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. And all of that was very intoxicating for a traumatized person, for a sexually traumatized person. Mm -hmm. And um, and when you're 16, you're vulnerable by default. You know, it's like he knew that. I have to keep reminding myself he knew that. He knew that. And I think I wrote about it in the book where I like, was like, would be around the village where I live and seeing 16 year old girls or teenage girls in their uniforms and stuff and be thinking, Jesus Christ, like, remind yourself of how they look and what you feel when you see them. It's so common for sex abuse survivors to, when their children get to the age that they were, mm. for them to have that moment of like, oh my God, that's so young. Yeah, it's so yeah. young and they don't know anything and that's yeah. not to be patronising. But we didn't, we don't. Mm. You don't, we don't know. Um... And it was the money, because if he hadn't given me money, I might have continuing, I might have continued to have these meetings with him. But because I didn't like him so much and because he was such a, a dickhead, for want of a better word, um, I probably would have left the situation earlier. And I would probably wouldn't have had that unconscious implantation of sex equals money or sex equals transaction or... Um, that probably wouldn't have happened for me, which led me actually voluntarily getting involved in the sex trade then after I got rid of him. Um, the money was the real issue for him, uh, issue for me, but also when he, he sent me to this friend of his and that was, that was a major turning point. For, I was about 19. Um, he told me to visit this friend of his. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but he told, because it's just so long, but he told me to go to this friend of his in a hotel. So I went and it was an old man and he would have been in his 60s and for me this was like okay I have a job to do I have to be there for a certain time getting a certain amount of money um I'm going to be there for a certain amount of time it was like a job 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 as opposed to with the other guy it was more like it was it did start feeling like a job towards the end but also I was keeping him happy um, because that was very important to me um, to keep him happy. Um, but this guy didn't care if I kept him happy or not. I just knew I had to go there and do this for this much time. And he, he, this old guy was like super friendly, super happy to see me, had this array of like underwear he wanted me to wear. Um, and he was incredibly, incredibly abusive. Um, he hurt me physically. Um, it was horrific. And he made me like stay in a certain position while he had a wank. And I didn't realize he was having a wank. So eventually I became aware that that's what that sound was. And it was just so degrading and undignifying and appalling to feel paralyzed and trapped and stuck in this experience that it just shouldn't have been in. Um, and I was unable to say no, because that's what happens when you get paid for something. You're not able to say no. Um, and for me, in that moment of being trapped on the bed like that, it, it put this thing of like, this is a job I can do. This is a job. I can do this job. But also, I can endure this level of violence. Um, I can survive this level of violence. Not, I don't have to do this, but I can, I can actually endure and survive this. And that was, um, that unfortunately was a real turning point for me, having that experience. Um, but it was another year or something until I actually entered the, you know, actual sex trade, I suppose. Though it's all on the spectrum, but you know what I mean.
So it's it's a strange like it's a strange psychological response, but it, I I know what you mean. I can understand it that you, you're you're thinking this is this is so horrific, and yet look at me, I'm enduring it. Like mm. there's a weird kind of clout almost in feeling like you have the strength. Kind of. It wasn't really something I was thinking. It was like an unconscious awareness, I would say, mm. of I have to endure this. Um, because nothing else was accessible. I could go on about the nervous system and stuff, but I won't. But there was nothing else accessible for me in that moment. There was no other option in that moment. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and Masculine and Feminine Polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. Let's talk about the nervous because you're, <laughs> I, I, I should say, you are now a psychotherapist, so you're, you know, you have a professional eye on these, on trauma now as well. Mm-hmm. Can you can you explain the 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 physicality of trauma to people who might not be familiar with it? Um yeah, so the trauma the the trauma, the nervous system operates, we've all heard of like fight, flight, freeze and fawn. So we'd have freeze at the so bottom. What's the last one? Fawn. Fawn. F H W N. I know like, I haven't heard that one. What, no, what it, no. Like when you fawn at somebody, like people over over people, we're all, bit, we're all people please a bit to like live our lives, but like overly people pleasing. Like mm. I'll do whatever you want. Don't worry about me. Like when a dog rolls on their back to show they're submissive, that's fawning at a, okay. at a more dominant. Yeah. Dog. No, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the very bottom of the ladder, say we've got like the closest to death. So that's like, that would be freeze. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, I don't know if you know anything about, um, so animals in the wild, the second before the tiger gets them or whatever, the lion gets them, they'll go unconscious. They'll just flop. Um, so we've got freeze or flop are these two. You can freeze or flop or whatever, but they they go they don't go numb. They don't feel anything. Or playing possum is another expression we use sometimes. The possum is like alive, but dead, basically. So a predator might come and find them and then be like, oh, this animal's already dead. That's not safe for me to eat. I'm going to move on. And then the possum comes back to life again, but it's all, it, it never died. Um, so that's, that's the, um, 
that's the survival mechanism of that end of the sex of the sex trade sorry of the nervous system where all these words are just in my head that I use all the time and that's that's the death end of the nervous system response Mm -hmm. So the the more most threatening the experience, the more we're going to die, um, freeze or flop, fawn. So and rape would be um, the closest experience to death that we'd have as humans, um, and that's why most rape survivors freeze when they when they're being raped, mostly. Um, then the, a little bit of movement up the ladder. Then we have fight or flight. So that's when there's more accessible to us. Now, somebody who's already been raped and then gets mugged or gets attacked again or something like that, they're going to respond out of a lower down the ladder place. (laughs) Does that make sense? They've already been put into an experience of freeze. So when they get mugged or then they get attacked or some life threatening thing happens, they're not they're probably not going to have fight or flight accessible to them. Somebody who's had a very lovely childhood, nothing really bad happened to them apart from normal adverse experiences that we all have. Um, they get mugged or something, they're probably not going to freeze because their nervous system is able to access further up the ladder. But somebody who's been abused as a child, they get raped, freeze. Or something else happens to them, freeze. Or some threatening person, just a person shouting at them, freeze. Right? Or anything that triggers off that nervous system response of like, I'm under threat, I'm not okay. Wait, it happens all the time. You know, if some neighbor's shouting at me over a parking spot, I'll just freeze and stand there and wait for it to be over. Do you know? Mm. That's a trauma response. And, you know, it comes up in our daily lives all the time. We don't have to experience it just under life-threatening conditions, do you know? Yeah, any sort of big adrenaline surge. Yeah, any um, any any moment of life, you know, things aren't safe here. Threat, yeah. And it does make sense, actually, from an evolutionary perspective, that you would learn to do that self-protective thing, because yeah. actually there are circumstances where freezing is the safest thing. Yeah, like your your, your body yeah. will know what the safest thing is to do, so we can never blame our response for fawning, you know, yeah. um, trying to people please our way out of a situation, or getting very submissive, or freezing, or whatever we do, or punching somebody, or whatever it is. Mm. But our nervous system always chooses what it knows is the safest for us to do in that time. Mm. So we can never blame ourselves. It's out of our control, um, how these things work. So that's do what you- happens. Yeah. Sorry, do you, do you know if women are more likely to do the, the, the freeze and fawn options as well compared with men? Because they seem like, it seems to me like those are some of the few options available to you as, as a woman if you are just smaller and weaker than the person who's attacking yeah, you. Yeah, you're probably right. I wouldn't know anything about it, but you're you're probably right. And you're probably right because women are conditioned so much to be pleasing and whatnot and mm. um, peaceful. Do you know, um, it is probably more likely that the nervous system would respond in a fawning way or a flop way mm-hmm. than maybe a fight or flight response. Yeah. So you still find now even that you'll kind of like be jolted into freezing or fawning at the sort of smallest stimulus. Yeah, freezing, because I experience a lot of dissociation where you feel like you are not quite connected to the world or the earth. Um, mm. You feel quite separate. And um, that's a that's a symptom of, of a trauma. Um, and that's a sur- survival thing that, that you have to do 
in traumatic situations like there's a spectrum as well you know there's the everyday dissociation we all experience with you drive in the car and then you realize you don't know where you are you don't know how you got down that road like that's normal or you space out or zone out or whatever and then there's a it's like gets more and more severe where i work with people who might cross the road and not even know what road they're on or not know where they are or or people who think they're dead a lot of the time or people who are not sure what's going on you know um that would be a uh, chronic dissociation Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's not it's not so chronic, but I, I do experience it a lot. Um, and that I, I believe that comes out of it, that comes out of like enduring a lot, a lot of trauma where you have to freeze consistently, which means you're constantly dissociating, constantly splitting from yourself, which means, of course, in your daily life, that's kind of your nervous system is in that place of like, well, this is just how we exist. This is how we survive just on an everyday basis. Um, so it's important to do body based activities and to do a lot of kind of mindful based activities to bring ourselves back into the material reality of what's happening. It's just a, it's a weird sensation. And it is. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a weird one. It feels a bit like you're a ghost floating around. Um, yeah, but yeah, but but, you know, interaction, stuff like that, where you might you might feel yourself freezing inside. It doesn't happen so much anymore, though. It is so common for women who have been involved in the sex industry in some way to report dissociation as a as a as a long term phenomenon, even after they've left, and also as a um, experience during unwanted mm-hmm. sex. Um, and I guess it, it you know, you, again, it's sort of you can see why it would be adaptive. You can see why it would it would help you to get through a horrible bodily experiences to be able to cut off from your body. But then. But then you're left with that potentially long term and all the all the like, other horrible side effects psychologically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The thing that I, I deal with most is like uh, memories and images and I experience depression. It's really weird, actually, like I've always been melancholic and kind of depression adjacent with a having actually without saying I actually have depression but um since my book came out um that was a very stressful experience and it was stressful professionally personally uh, all sorts of different ways it was an incredibly stressful time um, the book came out and everything was okay for a while like as in for me everything was kind of okay and nobody died. It was fine. You know, as a result of my book coming out, the world did not fall apart. Um, but then a couple of months after, I, I realized I had nowhere to put my trauma anymore. So it had all gone into the book for 10 years, on and off 10 years. I wrote a few different versions of this book. So I wrote one in 2012, another one in 2015. Then I wrote a novel. That's the one I'm still working on. Um, as a way of kind of telling a story that is telling the same, the things I want to tell without actually having to put my name to it and all. Um, so it's completely fiction, but that didn't cut it. And then I wrote this version of it. So it's been like a, re- and the six years of that or seven years of that was trying to get the law changed in Ireland as well to the Nordic model. Um, so I've always had a place to like pump my trauma at or like in, put that energy into something that felt like I was doing something even if all these books these two other books I wrote didn't actually go anywhere um they both were going to but then I had to cancel them because they neither of them felt okay um 
But I always had kind of, I guess, something on the horizon or something to work towards or something to be like, that's what I'm working for. That's where all this is going into. So if something might come to me or some image might come or some experience might happen related to the trauma experience, I could like write a little note in my phone or put it into my book later if it was relevant or interesting or whatever. Um, or at least it had somewhere for it to go. And then I realized in May, well, I didn't realize this till like a few weeks ago, but like I was left with this, with no landing pad anymore for what happened to me. But it was all still there. So I was thinking, oh, I'll be free when my book's done now, Grant. Like, <laughs> I'll be over it, you know? <laughs> like, And I know it's a psychotherapist, you don't get over trauma. Like, that isn't what happens. It's like any, it's like a loss or bereavement. You don't get over somebody dying, but you kind of learn how to live your life with that loss. It's the same thing with trauma. Um... So even though I knew that, I was still like surprised that I was like left with this empty void feeling, nowhere to put my stuff anymore. But the stuff was still there after I'd done the thing that I thought would be the expulsion of it or that the, mm, I don't know how, the excavating of it, you know, I thought that'll be done now um, and I'll be free to move on with my life and, and not be thinking about these things anymore, immersed in this world anymore. The laws change. That's great. I've got my books out. That's great. And then I was like, now what? Like, what is in my life now? Like nothing. <laughs> like, that's how it felt. Like, obviously that's not true, but that's how it felt. Um, And I went in this huge depression all summer. It was the worst summer I've ever experienced. I was so depressed. I had to drag myself around and I had these like nice experiences, but like, like I was invited to the president's house um, twice and for different events and stuff. And I had to drag myself there. I can't tell you how depressed I was. But having to put on this like, this is great. I'm so happy my book's out. And here's social media. Look at the photos of my book and me at all these events and everything's great. And I'm so enthusiastic about my book because you, you have to be, you know, Um. But it was, uh, again, this weird splitting where I was living one life where I was, I was unable to get up in the mornings and being late for everything and dragging myself to these beautiful events or whatever it was. And um, yeah, it was it was it was a really hard time. And it, it still is. It's like this. It's trying to come to terms with what, what I'm left with now that the book is out there, which is a really vulnerable, exposing thing anyway. But also my internal world is like still full of all this stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, because the I wonder how much of an impact the fact that the book is so personal and so having that. How does it feel to have that in the world and to have, have, have done the cathartic thing of putting it down on paper and then send it out there and everyone can read it? Do you, yeah. How did that feel? <laughs> um, it was really intense at the beginning when everybody I knew was reading it. That was really intense and telling me the thoughts. And I had a lot of emotional responses from people in my life that I kind of was looking after, you know. Um, so you had to caretake their emotions a little bit. A little bit, yeah. And that that was that felt a bit intense sometimes. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, I'm very happy for it to be out in the world. There's also a loss of control that you have to let go of, no matter what the creation is that you've made, you have to let go of that, death, death of the author thing or whatever it's called. Um, fine. But it is weird. Um, yeah, like, 
I think it was an incremental process. So I kind of, I stayed with every, I needed those 10 years and I needed those two other books to be written for me to be ready with this one. And it was an incremental process of telling my family and stuff like that. So getting my book deal, getting my agent, then the book deal kind of was like a, my friend called it like cogs, like another cog is done of this like much bigger machine. And I was like, that is a good way of putting it. So we're not looking at the huge machine, the big thing, the book coming out. But we're just like, today I'm signing the contract. And then, sorry, my post is back up, sorry. And then another day I'm going to, ease my family into the situation and then you know whatever another day this or another week that and I stayed incrementally with it so it didn't feel like this giant thing had happened when the book um when the book did come out which was good um but now it's, it's weird it's weird knowing people reading it that I know and then not telling me people not telling me they've read it or telling me that they've read their started it and they're not telling me that they finished it and I find all that really weird I'm like what did you think though like tell me what you think and <laughs> what did you like about it but, um, but then you don't hear from them at all again <laughs> it's really strange it's like someone just goes out of your house and they leave the door open you're like why did you leave the door open like it's a bit it's a little bit like that I don't know how to explain I find that weirdly like really vulnerable um I suppose I want I want to know what they what they thought or to hear back from them or something. Um but that's just human nature, you know, as well. Like for a lot of people it's just a book, you know, as well. They, there's kind of the product and then there's me and there's I think a different something happens for people in that sometimes. I don't know. Yeah. I mean that's I think that's always a feature of being in the public eye in any way, that the person the thing in the public eye is not actually the same thing as you um and it is always i think a bit alienating to read someone particularly a stranger writing about you this thing yeah. and like yeah. hang on there's a gap yeah. there um yeah. but so much more so for you because of obviously the nature of the book what what's been the most common response among people that you actually know in real life who've read it oh um really all good responses like beautiful yeah really nice um, everybody's very supportive of it and supportive of me and my work and all the rest of it. So nothing's changed. Like, that's the amazing thing. Like, um, with regards to my personal life, like, absolutely nothing has changed. Like, everything's the same. Family life is the same, more or less. Friend life is the same, completely. Um, yeah, nothing <laughs> nothing has changed at all. <laughs> as, a, as a psychotherapist, if you had... Um a client come to you who'd had similar experiences to you and they were thinking about writing a memoir as you have, would you tell them to do it? I know obviously you can't be a directive, but would you, <laughs> would you no. think it was a good idea? Well, this, this is the thing about psychotherapy is that it's subjective. So I'd be exploring with the client if they felt it was the right thing for them to do for them. Mm. It would not be something I would have any wisdom over, you know, what, what their choice would be in that. Um, I'd be as a psychotherapist, you're like with your client's, come into their own realizations so you're neither encouraging nor disencouraging so you know if you're concerned about something you might be chair concern and be like I'm just wondering about this part because you know my heart went a little faster there when you mentioned that like can we look at that for a second you know that kind of thing but you wouldn't be like listen I'm scared you should be scared this is a bad thing <laughs> so it, it would be more like yeah exploratory and but they crucially have to come to their own um their own decisions their own 
inner wisdom, really, and what's right for them in that moment. I'd love everyone to write about it because I think everyone, I think it'd be great if everybody could write their stories of stuff. Their stories of shame, really, uh, whatever the stories might be, but especially sex trade stories because we don't hear from sex trade survivors that much. Um, <clears throat> and if you, so the few of us who do write books are kind of denigrated and whatnot and told we're lying or patronising or whatever it is. Um, and that can get a little, that can be a little bit disheartening, I suppose. But like, you can't expect everybody to write a book. The only reason I wrote a book was because I'm a writer. I wouldn't have written a book if I wasn't already a writer. Um, I would have chosen some other way of, you know, excavating this um, story. But um, yeah, it would be great if we had a society where sex trade survivors would feel safer to talk about their experiences, I suppose. Mm, yeah, because as you say, there aren't very many books like this one, which makes it all the more valuable. And it is a very beautiful book, I must say. Um, you mentioned briefly the um, some of the public responses to, to you and other sex trade survivor writers. What uh, talks to me about those that public response? So the personal response from people you know is generally being great. Has that been true in public as well? No. Um, I'll tell you about the first review of the book. I don't think you probably didn't see it. No, um, I'll send it to you. I'll send. Oh, sorry, this is an aside. I'll send it to you. Um, <laughs> it was two days after the book came out. Um, the Irish Times review. So, I knew the name of the person doing the review, and I felt safe enough. I was like, okay, well, she's a feminist, so it should be okay. Um, and I didn't really think about a bad review from of my book. You know what I mean? Of a memoir is. A bit mad but like it was a very bad review um I had to get it changed I had to contact the editor a month later because I was in absolute paralysis for an entire month before I contacted the literary editor of the times and said like she's lying about me and um got some details changed so she said that the man who abused me who I called Jay in the book about about like a quarter of the review was like good the first, my sister held it up in the cafe. We were looking at it and she was like, so this much is good and this much is bad, right, from a feminist. But she said, um, she called the guy Jay, who I call him Jay in the book, who abused me. She called him my first client, client. Yeah, yeah. So she's a feminist. She read the book in which I... Sixteen at the time. I was sixteen, but I explicitly yeah. call out the word client, and he wasn't a client. He wasn't a punter. This was before I was in the sex trade. Mm -hmm. Um, this man was an abuser, and she said he was my friend. And she read the book. She knows that he handed me the money, and I left. And what in what way is that person a client? In what way am I a woman in the sex trade as a sixteen-year-old taking money some adult has just given me? So that made me completely. It was just the word, it was horrific to read a woman writing that about me. And then she added in for some reason a really horrific detail of abuse where he made me put my knickers in the sink and run them under cold water and then put them back on. This was the first meeting and it was awful. It was so humiliating. And she added that into a review that any random person could read about me without having to read the book to get the context or to get, you know, it was so humiliating. And I was in bed on Saturday morning reading this on my phone, just wanting to die. Then later in the review, I can't remember it all now. It's been a while since I looked at it. It was over a year now. Um, 
she gave out to me for generalizing and stuff like fine whatever whatever I think it was it's so interesting because the things that were kind of true I was like okay like whatever but it's like fine okay um, she said that I'm vague about, I, I refer to sex trade advocates and I'm, I'm vague. I don't talk about who they are. And of course I'm vague because I don't want them coming for me. So I'm just calling them sex trade advocates. I'm not going to name the organizations or the people or whatever, um, or the pimps. Um, so she said the sex trade ad advocates Mia refers to include Amnesty, the WHO, UN Women, all this. And I'm like, I, I wasn't referring to them. You're naming organizations that I didn't actually, you've decided who I'm talking about. Like, who do you think you are? And then she goes on about how I'm a, propo I'm a proponent. Is that a word? Uh, somebody who supports the Nordic model, blah, 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 blah. But this was not known information. For start, I I'm sorry for ranting. I didn't mention the Nordic model once in my book. I didn't mention legislation once in my book on purpose. I didn't. It's, we've had the law now five years. I don't, it's not relevant. I don't need to talk about it. Um, but she decides to make this whole three-act drama about the Nordic model in her review and about how it's bad and blah, 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 blah. And I never once mentioned this. Mm. And I didn't mention any of these organisations. And I was just like, thanks. It's really horrific. I can't remember. It's just horrific. So I had to get things changed. I DM'd her on Twitter. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and she, she had an axe to grind about the Nordic model and she was using your book. I think she easy. had don't think she had an axe to grind. I think she had a relationships to keep safe. She's an academic. We all know how notorious academics are when it comes to the Nordic model and prostitution in general. These middle class people who are in there, I'm so sorry for the ranting, but in their extremely sheltered, privileged position in life. Extremely sheltered. Um, who think that they are allowed to wax lyrical on something they will never have to experience and it's all to keep each other happy with each other. And I think that was the vibe I got more. It was like, oh, I can't get my, I, you know, I have to keep my feminist pals happy. Um, it was, the, it was, it was the most horrific thing I could have read two days after the book coming out. It probably doesn't sound that bad now I'm saying it out loud, but it really was. <laughs> it was really awful. It was really awful. And then I got it changed and that was great. And I made a big deal out of that online and... <sighs> She added in so, an extra like compliment on my writing. I was like, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> so for context for anyone who's um, not familiar with everything that's gone on in Ireland in relation to the Nordic model, could you explain just briefly what the source of conflict is over, over the law in Ireland and elsewhere? Yeah, the source of conflict is you have some people and organisations who would prefer... Uh, decriminalization decriminalization <laughs> which decriminalizes the entire sex trade so punters pimping brothel keeping and the women in the sex trade all of that be that behavior is decriminalized uh, it's in new zealand um and what we have and what we campaigned for and got in 2017 was the nordic model which criminalizes the sale of sex and decriminalizes the sorry decriminalizes the sale of sex and criminalizes the purchase of sex um, so it means the punter is committing a criminal act by paying for sex, but the woman is not doing anything illegal. Um, and yes, some courts of society would prefer to keep their incomes or keep their pimping operations and would prefer decriminalisation. So that's really what was happening. It's a lot quieter now, but obviously because we've had the law for a few years. But for a few years there, it was extremely tense. Um, 
And the dominant view in academia and among most feminists is in favour of decriminalisation um, and a, a pretty intense opposition to the Nordic model yeah. often. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you say, like the, the writer of this review in the Irish Times is very much coming from that academic place where that's just completely standard fare and saying anything else is really hard. Um I mean, I don't know what you think is motivating them. Some of, I'm sure some of it completely, as you say, is just being sheltered, just not knowing what the sex industry is like at all. Yeah. Um, and I think wanting to, to there's, there's a sort of performative open-mindedness and sort of mm. um, really, mm. really wanting to think that, that selling sex is like selling anything else and that we all just mm -hmm. need to be more kind of uh, um, just get with it. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And they focus on, so the, the conversation is always around the women. It's my body, my choice. It's my right to do this. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Fine. But we never, ever, ever look at the men who are the punters, um, who are the demand for the sex trade. So we hear from this tiny little minority of women who are happy at doing what they're doing or allegedly happy at doing what they're doing, because obviously we never know. Um, what we read or see is actually true. But let's just take it at face value, fine. Um, we hear from these people the most. Um, when actually in the sex trade in Ireland is 99% migrant women, and we know that over 80% of women in the sex trade want to leave the sex trade. But we have all these campaigns, nothing about us without us, and um, listen to sex workers and all. But it's like, who, which sex workers are you talking? Which sex workers are you talking about? You, you're talking about yourself. You're not, you're not talking about um, the 99% migrant women in Ireland. It's a really individualistic, selfish, all about me, liberal feminist, um, hard energy kind of a thing, as opposed to what do we want the world to look like? What, how do we want um, what do we want for all women? What's best for all women and all girls? Obviously, paid sex is not that, obviously. Um, so let's work towards that rather than keeping you happy because you get to pick your clients. Um, it's absurd to me that people buy into this bullshit, but I do think it's because people, and I'm talking about average people, you know, everyday people, they don't want to see the actual darkness that's in the, the dark heart of misogyny that is prostitution. And that is why I go on and on about the men so much and the reviews they leave for the women and the fact there's 100,000 of them in Ireland compared to 1,000, around 1,000 women in the sex trade in Ireland, but our, our awareness is always on the women. So I keep wanting to drag it back onto the men and be like, if you're saying the sex trade is okay, it's a job like any other, then you have to say that this behavior of these men is okay, that them doing this is okay, that them leaving these reviews and giving ratings out of five stars for appearance, satisfaction, um, overall what it, uh, value for money. Um, it, uh, it's absolutely horrific. And they write things like um, she had no English. She could only say things that were like uh, business related terms. Um, she's very tight. Yeah, it's just awful, aren't they? Yeah, the starter was good. The main course was okay. Like these weird language, but but saying that a woman had great tits and is very tight, and liberal feminists are defending this by defending the sex trade, and most of them don't know that reviews exist. Most of them haven't been on the Escort Ireland website or Punternet or whatever. Most of them haven't. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't go there. But they can sit around, they can sit around on Twitter or whatever they want to do talking about how sex workers work. I'm sorry. Yeah. 
The mm. thing that makes me feel really sure that actually they do know that it's not like selling other things mm. that, you know, reviewing. They know it's not like other things. Yeah. And the thing that I think makes it really obvious to me is that they are the, f they tend to be the first to kick up a fuss about sexual harassment in their own workplaces. You know, you, I, you saw this during Me Too, where say journalists who were super pro sex workers work, decrim, etc., would then be um, sort of hypersensitive to sexual jokes or, or, or like even non-sexual touching or all kinds of stuff in the, in their own, you know, their offices, um, which had any kind of sexual flavour and would say, this is really inappropriate, this makes women uncomfortable. Like, when it's them, <laughs> they get it. But then when it comes to, you know, some other, like, hypothetical woman having to sort of sell sexual access to herself, then suddenly that's okay. I mean, this is, I think, the problem with trying to say that sex is just a service or can be comparable to anything else, is that if you're saying that, then you also have to say that sexual harassment isn't worse than any other kind of sort of yeah. rudeness in the office, yeah. Yeah. that rape is just like mm -hmm. theft, that, mm -hmm. you know, you have to go yeah. the whole way. Mm -hmm. And they don't go the whole way, mm -hmm. <laughs> which makes no. me think that they don't really mean it. And actually almost no one really means it, I think. Yeah, I don't think they mean it either. I, I think they're just, it's like a... It's like a cognitive distortion of some kind, so they don't have to actually face into stuff. If they keep telling lies, then they're kind of in weirdly protected in some way. But you're so right when they talk about sexual harassment and this kind of thing. It's like either our sexuality has, and Andrea Hines, a sex trade survivor, said this recently, either sexuality has an innate value or it doesn't. You don't get, get to pick and choose when it does and when it doesn't. And actually, our bodies don't get to pick and choose when it does or when it doesn't. So when we say, this is why I get so angry with the word consent. If I say, yes, I will give you a blowjob for 50 quid. That's me consenting to do that. But my body is experiencing an unwanted sexual experience. Whether I'm thinking, this is fine, it'll be over in half an hour, I'm getting 50 quid or whatever it is. This is worth it for the money, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff I used to tell myself. The body is absorbing the unwanted sex. So it's absorbing the trauma. And we're compounding down on that freeze response that I got from when I was raped. And from before then and other experiences in life, you know, that would have sent the message. You can't say no or whatever. Um, that's, the, that's why the sex trade is harmful. That's why. Because the body taking away anybody's individualistic thoughts and feelings about the sex trade or how much they like it or if they get off on having sex with money, whatever it is, the body experiences unwanted sex and we can't argue with that. There's no arguing that. And it'll it'll come out in various different ways. But most of us live in our heads, not in our bodies. So we intellectualize everything. It keeps us away from the visceral reality. And like, you know, especially men really drive me nuts when they're protecting the sex trade. I'm like, imagine if they went into a hotel room and their own 21-year-old daughter was sitting on the bed. What would they feel? They'd be absolutely appalled. And we all know they would be. They, we all know that visceral response we have when we think about having sex with a random stranger. Because that's what the sex trade is. They don't talk about they. I say they. I'm doing that generalizing thing again. But you know what I'm talking about. These advocates of the sex trade. They say like uh, they will never talk about what actually happens in the room. So a man comes in. He speaks to you or he doesn't speak to you. Or you go into his room. He lets you in. He's either friendly, not friendly. He makes small talk. He doesn't. You don't know. You just have to go along with whatever. And then he takes out his dick and you have to give him a blowjob. That's what happens. There is no like having a nice time or anything like that. Anything they might allude to or talk about how lovely their punters are and all this kind of stuff. 
the everyday reality of the sex trade is that, that a man comes in, you give him a blowjob, then you have sex with him and he leaves. And that's it. And a lot of them don't speak at all for the entire time you're with them, which is extremely um, disconcerting at best, I suppose. But yeah, no, they fully know it's not just a service like any other. And that argument is so demeaning and degrading because you're making abuse less than what it is. You're making, you're minimising and sweeping away actual real abuse that happens to women and girls around the country every single day. Um, yeah. I thought it was really telling um, in um, Westminster when there was, um, I think it was particularly during COVID. So there was a, a rush of stories in the media during COVID about um, landlords who would offer mm. rent mm. in exchange mm. for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, sex for rent, I think it was what it was called in the media. Yeah. And it was particularly in, um, I think I remember reading about it happening in London, Bristol, Oxford, Cambridge, like expensive places. And um, everyone was up in arms. I, I didn't, I don't think I've come across anyone, any politician, anyone who was like, yeah, fine, this is a completely reasonable exchange of services for, you know. Um, and in fact, you had, um, I think Jeremy Corbyn in particular was really um, vocal against this and a whole bunch of politicians who in other contexts have been in favour of the decriminalisation of the sex industry. Mm. But when it came mm. to rent, mm. all of a sudden that was completely mm. different. And mm-hmm. it was like, hang on. I mean, we, we recognise, you know, if you take a job as like, I don't know, a live-in nanny, you'll expect rent to have some financial value when you're negotiating your contract. You know, that's fine. Like that's a offering accommodation in exchange for, for work is a completely reasonable thing in other industries why not, you know, follow through on your logic, right? And I, my suspicion, and it's a very cynical suspicion, but my suspicion is that it's because, um, particularly in the southeast of England, housing is really expensive. And a lot, of the, a lot of the cities that were being presented as examples of where this was going on were university cities. And I think a lot of people who have, you know, middle-class daughters going to university thought, oh my God, imagine my daughter being offered this by a landlord and it was that kind of immediacy this could actually happen to someone that I'm I know and love that made them recognize it for what it was whereas in the abstract when it's happening when it's basically happening to Mm -hmm. poor women you don't know yeah yeah it's that othering thing it's happening to somebody who's different or uh we can kind of make there be a reason why they're doing that that's fine but exactly it's too close to home we had the same issue here the sex for rent thing and um, the same thing, it was, everybody's in a, in a thing about it. And um, exactly, like extend that argument to that. Why, why is that problematic or why is that so appalling when um, a woman, a man paying a woman to have sex so that she can afford her rent is fine? Like, what's the difference? Because a woman can, is free to say no to a man saying, please have sex with me. Like, what's the problem? Like she can just say no if we go with their. I mean, obviously, I know what the problem is, but if we if we go with their logic, what's the issue? She can just say no. Like, just don't be in the sex trade if you don't like it. Don't don't sleep with your landlord if you don't want to. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, either you could pick one way or the other. You don't get to pick and choose when a man exploiting a woman for a resource is okay and when it isn't. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you don't, you don't, either it's okay or it's not okay. We don't get to, and I'm, I'm quite black and white on things. I'm like, either, either it's okay to objectify a woman or it's not okay. Either it's okay to rate women out of five stars or it's not okay. Like we had this thing with, um, what are they called? The Price Waterhouse Cooper, the big accounting firm, um, or whatever they are. Um, 
this is years ago and there was a scandal broke out where there was a bunch of guys rating the new women or interns or whatever they were um, out of 10 or something like that in WhatsApp groups and all this kind of thing. This leaked or whatever and it was like this whole big thing. And I was like, but it's absolutely fine for a man to rate a woman on a sex trade website. That's okay though. And then you're like, oh, well, no, it's different. They're providing a service. Like we rate restaurants and we rate, we, we rate cafes and stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, well. The we'll difference s- is class. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. 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 I think that's what it always comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Um, mm. I want to talk in the extended bit a bit about um, how you ended up getting out of the sex industry and sort of how you're. Mm-hmm. how you're thinking about your experiences has evolved with time. Yeah. Um, but first I wanted to ask if if when you were 16, 17 and you were um, being groomed into this, do you think if the Nordic model had been in place, do you think that would have affected your decision-making or, or or what the men... What what difference do you think it would have made? Um, yeah, I, th- I think it would have. Now, when I was got involved in the sex trade as you know, as in selling, as in selling sex to lots of different men and being advertised on websites and stuff. I was about 20, 21. And um, I think so, because I had no awareness of the law. The law back then was like kind of, it wasn't illegal or legal to sell sex. It wasn't illegal or legal to pay for sex, but it was illegal to curb crawl. Um, Not that it stopped them. Um, I would get curb crawled constantly on my way home from college. Um... And it was illegal to solicit. That's how it was. But I wasn't aware of any of this. Um, I think if the Nordic model had been in place and I was aware, see the message the Nordic model sends women, part of it is what's happening to you is not okay. And knowing that what the men were doing was not okay, but what what I was doing was, um, uh, I don't know what word to use not a crime but also there's a reason it isn't a crime that like it's a it's like i don't want to say the word victim but but that is kind of how it is um if i'd had that message it might have made me think about it differently if i saw it as something that wasn't an equal transaction or if i had gotten that message somewhere that it wasn't an equal transaction that the men were doing something wrong Maybe that would have supported me. I, I mean, it's kind of impossible to say, but maybe it would. Have, I mean, I'd hope it would. Because back then there was no information about there was, there was no campaigning about the law. And the law was not I didn't know. I didn't know what the law was, to be honest with you. So, yeah, I think I think it probably would have had an impact of some kind. Mm. It changes the, the one of the benefits is that it does change the culture. It changes what exactly what we think this is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, um, so for, 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 for pay subscribers, we're going to have a little extra bit, um, at the end of this and, and talk a little bit more about how you got out of the sex industry. Um, for everyone else, uh, what's the title of your book? Where can they get it? Where can they find uh, more of your work? Um, my book is called Any Girl, a memoir of surviving prostitution in Ireland. Um, it is available, if you Google it, it's available in Waterstones <laughs> and uh, on Book Depository and Amazon. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you just Google it, you'll, you'll find it somewhere. It's also available as an audiobook, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yes, I always forget about that. I, <laughs> I even recorded it and I forgot. Yeah, so it's also available as an audiobook, yeah. And it's a mere six hours long, so it's a, it's a handy one. <laughs> and it's available ebook as well. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Mia. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>